0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. Even in our lives today, this isn't just high school popularity. People are rolling their eyes right now. Uh There are influencers in your office. There are influencers in every social circle, entrepreneur circles, everything. There are influencers in there. We just don't think of it as such. Um, because it's a little bit depressing to think, like, oh gosh, we're still doing this. But <laughs> there is a lot to be said for these influencers and decision makers, and it's not just the person with the highest status. Uh-huh. It's not like at work you might have an influencer that's not a manager, or not, at least not your manager. It's never going to be the person with the lowest status, but there could easily—and you see this—you saw the show The Office, right? Mm-hmm. So you remember how Jim was like the office cool guy and everyone liked him, but he wasn't the manager. In fact, the manager was a joke. That's like the point of the show. Mm -hmm. Well, you see that in most offices where there's somebody that everyone likes and very rarely is it the boss. In fact, it's usually not.
0: I appreciate you having me back on, man. Yeah, it is uh, very cool to have you back here. You know, it's interesting because you and I go quite a ways back. I know you from having been on The Art of Charm. We've had you here before on The Unmistakable Creative. And uh, when you wrote to me initially and you told me your first pitch, I was like, yeah, that doesn't sound interesting. And then you came back to me with something that sounded incredibly fascinating, which we will get into in quite a bit of detail. But... Um, I want to start with a question that I think is always very interesting to ask people who study human behavior, and that is, what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Oh, super interesting question. Okay, so in high school, I was a, a – this is an interesting sort of like amalgamation, I guess you might call it. So I went from being one of the biggest, most self-conscious, geeky, nerdy guys in middle school – to being uh in a different totally different group in high school and the reason was in part because i started going to the gym and working out and then it turned out i was really good at football at the time um and then i was also really sort of nice and by the time i got to the high school i was nice to all the geeks who were my friends throughout all of elementary school all of middle school and i didn't change that in high school because i saw that as a losing strategy a lot of people were doing that like i'm gonna be a dick to all my friends who are geeky in an effort to reinvent myself. And it totally does not work at all. And I didn't do that because I was like, these are good people. I don't have to be a dick. And if my new friends don't like these people, like, I just don't care. Uh Uh, And so I, I was able to sort of straddle this interesting line between here are the popular kids and the cool kids and the athletes. And my best friend was like captain of the football team. And then. Here are all these geeky kids who are really into computers or just nerds for some other reason, and I'm still totally cool with them. And I was able to take smart kid classes, Mm -hmm. goof around with all the jocks at football and stuff like that. And then I got in – and another thing that that was awesome that happened to me, and this sounds so ridiculous to say this is awesome, I separated my shoulder and – so I got an injury and it turned out to be chronic and couldn't be fixed except with surgery. And I didn't want to do that because it wasn't like that bad and sports didn't mean that much to me. But what ended up happening was since this is, this is also going to date me here. This is nineties. <laughs> nope. Knew how to use a video camera uh-huh. except for. And so the, the coach was like, well, you're injured. And I was like, yeah, I can't play football anymore. And then I was like, shit, I was going to get a varsity letter and try to go to college, not to play football, but to like have that on my college resume Uh, our applications. And the coach was like, can you film practice? And I was like, of course I can. I know everything about video cameras, computers, and a lot (laughs) of stuff. Thanks, Thanks, geek friends. Right. Uh We're like, great. We're going to pay you and we're going to make you a varsity player so that you can get on the buses for the games and like you can blah, 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 blah. blah." So I basically got to be varsity my sophomore year of high school or something like that, Uh technically and i got to be friends with all the athletic kids right before they started rapidly outpacing me right i was okay in freshman year and then sophomore year i kind of sucked by junior and senior year i wouldn't have even made i would have been warming the bench for the jv team forever as the 43rd string you know <laughs> linebacker or something like that cuz all these kids outgrew me by uh-huh. then And my strength advantage was null. So it was great because I was – since I was injured, I was the video guy. I was totally like outside that circle. And so the status and the hierarchy on the team didn't matter. I could be friends with all of the best running backs and the best people on the team, but I was the video guy. Like you can't really screw with that because I'm crucial – I'm important to the team – So I'm at camp. I'm everywhere with the team, but I also don't have to show any athletic prowess (laughs) because I didn't have any. And so I ended up being on the outside of that. And that totally translated to high school where it was like, oh, Jordan's on the football team. Jordan's varsity, quote unquote, varsity athlete, even though everybody knew like the joke is, yeah, I hold the video camera, (laughs) but I'm not quite the water boy. And then all of the smart kids who I was friends with because of the geek classes, I ended up being friends with all of those kids too. So I had my hands and you know my social hands, if you can call it that, fingers in every single social group, pretty much in college, uh, high school, and that was really, really great because it showed I knew how everybody thought mm-hmm. because I was great at generating rapport with all of those different various types of people and knowing how other people think and feel is great and i remember having conversations with a lot of my friends in the jocks that were like oh man that one chick you hang out with she's so cute too bad she's such a dork and then some of the nerdy girls are like how come you hang out with those guys they're so dumb and they're so macho and you're you're not like your friends are so bizarre and every side of that kind of had that to say and i had great friends but i really got good insight on how pretty much everybody thought in the whole stinking school Uh, wow so, uh, this is a question
0: out of morbid personal curiosity because I was definitely one of the the not so cool kids in yeah, junior cool. high high school, you know <laughs> maybe even college uh What I'm curious about is, is what is it that makes people popular in a time like high school, like what causes a person to become popular and what causes a person to be unpopular, and does it even matter later in life at all?
1: I have a feeling that it is. It varies from school to school, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a cultural thing, because I know that there are private schools. My friend went to a private school in L.A., and it was cool to be smart there, which is like, I mean, I don't even know what that must have been like. That must have been awesome. But it was cool to be smart there, so all of the like cute girls and the jockey guys also wanted to get straight A's. That's how they, that was cool there. Uh-huh. Whereas like in my school, that was not the case, and I know that in some schools... All of it matters is athletics. Uh, my friend went to school in Texas, and it's like if you were on the football team, you were made in the shade, and everybody wanted to hang out with you, and if you weren't, you were just like, it sucked to be you. Uh-huh. And they ran those like college teams. And then there yeah, there were just tons of different kind of little cliques like that that ended up happening all over the place. And so I think it varies from school to school. And so I don't want to say, what makes you popular is this, mm-hmm. um, but The some of the same things can make you popular in school that make you popular in life, such as confidence, being comfortable in your own skin, being unflappable and unshakable in certain situations, being really nice to everyone was a huge advantage, and that was highly counterintuitive, because since the jocks and some of the in crowd were insecure, they would seek to insulate themselves, and they didn't want somebody jumping into their crowd, so uh, they would do things like if you were a, a, a girl that was cute but you weren't in the in crowd the other girls who were in the in crowd would be super mean to you i mean they would just ruin your your life because they didn't want their place in the hierarchy to get messed with if mm-hmm. that makes sense yeah yeah for sure and so you end up with like this really bizarre this sort of bizarre situation where it's like wait this girl's just as pretty as that girl yet this girl decided she's in crowd and the other girl can't break into it i don't understand and you, you you find these weird patterns in there, but being nice to everyone, you will never be at the top of the top of the top, at least in my school, right? I can't really believe I remember all this, but I spent a lot of time analyzing it even back then. You'll never be at the top of the top of the top, but it doesn't really matter because if your goal is just to make friends with everybody and not be terrorized or bullied, then all you had to do was be friends with like – one of the burnout stoner kids and a couple <laughs> of the jocks and a couple of the geeky kids and all the people in the middle who felt invisible and like being friends with certain girls that were influential was a kind of thing. Cause even in our lives today, this isn't just high school popularity. People are rolling their eyes right now. Uh-huh. There are Influencers in your office. There are influencers in every social circle, entrepreneur circles, everything. There are influencers in there. We just don't think of it as such. Um, because it's a little bit depressing to think, like, oh gosh, we're still doing this. But <laughs> there is there's a lot to be said for these influencers and decision makers, and it's not just the person with the highest status. Uh-huh. It's not like at work you might have an influencer that's not a manager, or not, at least not your manager. It's never going to be the person with the lowest status, but there could easily—and you see this—you saw the show The Office, right? Mm-hmm. So you remember how Jim? was like the office cool guy and everyone liked him, but he wasn't the manager. In fact, the manager was a joke. That's like the point of the show. Mm -hmm. Well, you see that in most offices where there's somebody that everyone likes and very rarely is it the boss. In fact, it's usually not. And it's very clear in that because it's a TV drama, but it's very, very clear also in a lot of uh, other workplaces and a lot of uh, even like bigger organizations have that exact same thing. So I find that stuff to be completely fascinating, and finding influencers in every situation is kind of a it become a sub hobby. Mm-hmm. It's it it almost ends up being a joke in certain situations where there's a lot of people who are kind of untouchable. You can't get to them. You can't get to them, and then you find that a savvy networker is like, "Cool. Well, I'm just going to volunteer at this organization with my wife, where your wife's sister is working." And then they become good friends with that person who introduces them to her sister, and then suddenly it's like, hey, can we do business with this person? And it's like, well, he can't say no to his wife who can't say no to her <laughs> sister, right? You see yeah. stuff like that, and it looks a little bit shady, and then you realize actually that's literally how every friggin' place works and operates. And it's just that doing it deliberately sounds like manipulation, right. but when it happens supposedly by accident, well, then it's totally fine. Come on. Yeah. So well, it's there. We just sometimes we refuse to acknowledge it because we feel like it's cheating or we feel like other people will think it's cheating. But that's just BS.
0: Yeah. So that that actually raises the question. Like I I, I think, you know, I, I wouldn't even call it cheating. I would call it being intelligent. But the the question that raises is how do you do it without seeming inauthentic or or sleazy about it?
1: Yeah. The, the trick is really to actually be authentic. And I yeah. know that sounds <laughs> like, OK, but, but look at it like this. I definitely want to. At some uh, – let's take the show as an example. I wanted to come on this show, and I, I I sent you a pitch, like you said, and you were like, oh, this is garbage. And then <laughs> I did a different one that was more in line with what you wanted, which was the idea. Uh, uh, that's the whole point. I'm not just like, well, screw you. You owe me one, Rao. you Rao. Know, which I, I do,
0: actually. Come to think of it, if we were keeping score, I do. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, but, but who cares, right? Yeah. Well, that's another thing. We'll get to keeping score. Remind me of that. Yeah. But it's better to offer you something of value, and then it's like, oh, good. This is a win for my audience and a win for, for me. Because if I would said you owe me one, you'd have been like, damn it. I oh, Yes, okay, fine, <laughs> but – I really don't want to like slap my audience in the face with this story that they've already heard from you or this pitch I didn't really like or whatever it was in there. Uh And, And that totally makes sense. And the problem is you see a lot of transactional networking and a lot of transactional relationships, especially in the entrepreneur community. And by that, I don't mean every small business owner. I mean the entrepreneur um, – on the online entrepreneur community, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, hey, Jordan – I mean stop me when you've heard this a million times. Hey, Srini, I run a podcast. You run a podcast. Why don't I come on your show and you come on my show? And I'm <laughs> like, you're no. How about no? I don't need to do that, especially when somebody is brand new to it. It's like, well, you do realize that – I don't know, Srini. You've got like tens of thousands of fans, and this person has – Hundreds and you know downloads over the last few weeks, and you don't know who's listening and how influential they are. It just doesn't make sense. There's no value exchange in there, even if their topic was good. But they don't even care about the topic. And you and I talked about this pre-show. They just want to like trade influence or something like that. So they're going to come on and make a lame-o pitch on your show, and you're going to go on and make some lame-o pitch on their show, and that's their idea of how this is supposed to work. And so what I do when people pitch me that stuff, well, now I just say no. But a few years ago, I decided I'm going to test the waters here and screen these folks in the following way. I said, nah, I'll go on your show, but I'm not really interested in having you come on and talk about that on The Art of Charm. And 90% of the people said, well, then no. I don't want to do that because that's how this works. And I thought, well, that's a good testament because you don't really want to serve my audience if your whole goal, if it's a deal breaker that I will not interview you, then clearly you don't really care about the fact that I'm going to deliver good content to your audience. And since you're not going to care if I deliver good content to your audience, you're just trading their attention for my audience's attention, that's your goal, then you're certainly not going to care about what you deliver to my my audience if you don't even care about yours. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge red flag for me, and I was able to figure out that there were a certain – a number of people who went, yeah, you know, I understand that. I'll tell you what, I'll have you on my show. I think your content's good. And then we can go from there if you change your mind, otherwise no pressure. And then out of those folks, they would come in and, and try to knock it out of the park. Sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't, but they were happy either way because we got a good show out of it for their folks. And I thought that was a very good screen mm-hmm. uh, because people who just want to add to their Twitter account or podcast downloads or Instagram followers, it's just transactional. It's quid pro quo. And some of the mistakes that those same people made were also not only the quid pro quo transactional instead of authentic networking or social capital as we call it at the art of charm mm-hmm. they do the they do the thing where, that you mentioned they keep score where they say well you know i had you on my show i'd like to come on yours now and it's like yeah but that we didn't have an agreement to do that and so what keeping score does is it creates covert contracts mm-hmm. and what why it's covert is because it only exists in the mind of one person and it wasn't agreed on by both parties. No. And so that's what happens when it's like, hey, Srini, why don't you come on my show or what? you know? And you're like, great, sure. And then I interview you. And then after that, I'm like, cool, let me know when you want me to be on your show. And you're like, eh, you, know, you sell plastic cases for memory cards, <laughs> so I don't think it's a really good fit. And then they go, well, F you then, right? And you're going, wait, what? How did that happen? And the reason that they're angry is because- they were keeping score. They had a covert contract that said, if he comes on my show, I'll go on their show. And so it's this really, it's weird because it's a step up and yet it's a step back from transactional networking, which if I email you and I say, come on my show and you, you, then I'll go on yours, I can say no, uh-huh. right? It's transactional and it's bad, but at least I can say no. On the other hand, if there's a covert contract, it's like, great, I'd love to. And then you're pissed off because I broke the contract I didn't know we had. Uh-huh. I broke the agreement that I never agreed to in the <laughs> first place. And so the reason that covert contracts are so bad and keeping scores so bad is because it poisons the relationship, but it's unilateral. You're not actually mad at me. I'm mad at you for something that you're not doing that I never asked you to do. <laughs> Weird, right? Yeah,
0: no, it's brilliant. And if, you know, I think we could both probably agree that if you haven't read it, Give and Take by Adam Grant is a really, you know, great book about this. Um, yeah. That goes into, to you know, Explicit detail about the science of it. (laughs) So uh, one of the things that I I am very curious about is, you know, you mentioned that you were the video guy for the high school football team, which, you know, being an avid Friday night lights fan um, Mm -hmm. and somebody who plays Madden, but couldn't tell you a thing about what's actually happening in real football, NFL or college. um, I'm curious what you learned about human performance by watching athletes.
1: I, I think calling a high school football team in Michigan, athletes is probably a little generous, <laughs> sure. but, um, I, I know, you know, I noticed that a lot of the guys that this is an informal study. I'm just going to throw that little <laughs> asterisk. Yeah. I noticed that a lot of the guys who were really good at football that went on to play in college were not necessarily some of the greatest guys to, to who finished college and did really well or anything like that. But there was a certain sort of median, where people showed up to practice, they put the work in and didn't have a lot of natural talent. And then they went to like a middle range school and they were able to do really well. And part of it was just because of the work ethic that they built in athletics and things like that. But it's so strange to me. And I think part of this has school to blame. I don't think it's necessarily the athlete. And I put that in air quotes. Um, I think school sets people up to fail in so many ways that when people get really interested and have something they're passionate about like athletics, that's great. And you see someone's sort of true potential come out. Do they show up to practice every day? Do they do the work? Do they hit the gym? Do they Are they nice to their teammates? Do they blame everybody else for their mistakes or the failures of the team? You see that and you think, great. And then you, you see these same people in school maybe not doing so well or – typically doing exactly what they do in practice. You know, it's those same people where the people who go, well, the teacher hates me. So I got a bad grade. No, the teacher doesn't hate you. And it's not everyone else's fault that you didn't score that touchdown or that we lost that game. And, you know, they view themselves as sort of entitled and special. And those people did not do well. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I learned a ton of human performance things by watching high school football players. But I did learn that how you do and this is a very instagram memey thing to say <laughs> there's plenty of room to dispute this in in many cases but i did learn that in many ways not in all ways how you do anything is how you do everything uh-huh. and so I didn't make that up either. That's from some self-help book, I'm sure, <laughs> but Dale Carnegie or something. Yeah. But basically it's like, look, if you show up and you do the work and you go to the gym and you're nice to your teammates and you play as a team player and you don't blame other people for your mistakes, you're probably not going to do that in other areas of your life. And that's important to note because I've also found that like issues and crap, I'd say baggage that I used to bring to the business here at the Art of Charm and on, on the Art of Charm podcast I was bringing that into dating and in relationships that I was having with the opposite sex, and I thought, "Wow, this is really interesting uh, when i 'm cranky at work it's the same stuff that 's triggering me in my relationships. it just has a different shade on it you know it 's spray painted a different color uh-huh. and I thought that was super, super interesting because again, you can see how people show up at work and, and show up in their relationships, and it 's almost like the, the exact same thing it's it's kind of wild interesting so what exactly
0: prompted um you know, in addition to sort of being this person who could navigate multiple social groups. I mean, you, there were some interesting things that you wrote to me when, when we came back with a second pitch about being an informant for the FBI hacking phones and doing all sorts of crazy shit that, you know, I was kind of like, okay, this is fascinating. What in th- This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
3: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. The world made you get into all of that. And how did that, all this, you know, interest in social behavior end up, you know, leading you down the trajectory that you've gone down to end up doing what you have with art of charm.
1: Yeah. So long and stop me if you want me to flesh any of this other stuff out, but long story short, I was, wiretapping when I was a little kid because I was an only child and I <laughs> needed more supervision, frankly. Um, and that got me interested in people as three-dimensional human beings because when you're a kid, adults are people that yell at you, feed you, drive you places, and give you homework. And and your parents are somewhat more three-dimensional, but every other adult is like Charlie Brown, like, wah, 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 type thing. You know, you don't – they're just this weird alien type of person to you. And so wiretapping, what I was able to do when I was able to listen to other conversations was I heard a neighbor getting a divorce, and I heard the way he talked to his soon-to-be ex-wife. It was terrible. I heard the way that he talked with his sister, and he was like this wounded little kid. And then when he talked to his mom, he was like this whiny little boy. And then when he's talking to his buddies, he's like this macho jerk face. And I was like, yo, buddy, if you just talk to the, your soon-to-be ex-wife – even remotely the same way that you talk to your sister, for example, your relationship would have been so amazing, I'm sure of it, and you wouldn't be getting a divorce. Meanwhile, I'm like 14, and I'm thinking this in my head. And so that got me jump-started on human relationships pretty early. And, of course, I eventually ended up getting caught for the wiretapping thing, and (laughs) along with a lot of other people, the the cell phone cloning, which is what it was, where you basically reprogram a cell phone and you can listen to other people's conversations. Uh This is back in the 90s. Don't worry, your iPhone is... Well, your iPhone's not safe. Who are we kidding? Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but you know, I was able to, to sort of parlay that into – well, first of all, the FBI was in it, and they were they were like, we don't really want to prosecute you because this is just, like, bad for business. We don't want to <laughs> throw you in as a defendant along with these, like, 40-year-old guys who've stolen electronic equipment and stuff. It's clear you didn't know what you're doing, and we don't want a judge or a jury looking at you when they're trying to sentence these other guys. So they were like, look, we just needed you to – Show us what's going on here. And they didn't have me fingering other people or anything like that. What they did have me doing was showing them how this technology worked because even the tech surveillance people at the FBI were like, wait, you can just reprogram a phone? What the hell? Or like, wait a minute. You're online in a chat room and there's you know pervert people in there. And I'm like, yeah, you guys don't know about this? And I'm showing them AOL transcripts of, you know, people being weird and they set me up so that I could be, I could ghost in chat rooms and look at people's private chats and stuff. Uh, they didn't set me up for that. I'll be honest. I set myself up for that and I sent them the transcripts and they, they were kind of using me in a way where, look, law enforcement can't just just spy on random people without a warrant. But if a citizen says, look, I got this information, you might want to know about it. Then sends it to them. I was faxing them chat transcripts from other people. They were like, oh, we're very interested in this because this is clearly like online child predators and you know other hackers and stuff like that doing very illegal things. I'm not talking about the kind of hackers that go, man, the phone system is so interesting. Let's see if we can do this. Let's see if we can do that. I'm talking about people who are like – hey, I steal wallets and I put the credit card numbers online for money. Like these are bad people. These are criminals and a lot of child molester types. This is, again, back in the days of AOL chat rooms. And these guys were kind of going unchecked because the FBI didn't have agents that were tech savvy. They had a, and I'm not even kidding, cyber crime department or division, and they were only in, I think, D.C. Mm -hmm. And there was like four or five agents assigned to this in the early 90s because they didn't even have computers at a lot of these offices. And so I remember the agents being like, I would tell them where I got everything and they'd go, oh, hold on. We got to schedule a call with DC because I have no idea what you mean that you dialed in. What do you mean you dialed in with your phone? And I'm like, no, the modem in the computer. And he's like, the modem is what again? And I'm like, Oh my God, you guys are screwed. You know, like <laughs> how are you going to fight these people if you don't even know what the hardware is? And the truth is, it was just you know there was a curve and the criminals were on the edge of the curve, and uh, and the the police were playing catch up. But it wasn't even remotely as close as it was now. And there were there was no such thing as a white hat hacker back then either. I mean, if there were if there was I, I've never seen it. And so I started to work with them, and and that put me in an arena where as a fifteen sixteen year old kid I'm dealing with adults all day every day all the time. Mm-hmm. And not only adults but like people I thought were pretty cool FBI agents, security people. That stuff was really interesting. So, that got me interested in the fact that um, these human relationships, not only could I see these conversations online and on the phone, but I was dealing with people who had real stuff. I mean, these FBI guys were in their 20s and probably in their 30s as well. And I was freaking 15, man. You know? So, it, it's not so secret agent y like it sounds because this happened over such a long period of time that, you know, it was like once a month there would be something interesting happening. Mm-hmm. But that really got me interested in human behavior. And then finally, Later on down the road, I started working on Wall Street, and the guy who hired me – you know, when you're a kid like me, you can get by on – and I'm putting this in air quotes so I don't sound like a D-bag. You can get by on so-called smarts through middle school and high school, but then when you get to college at the University of Michigan, everyone's as smart as me, or at least most of them were. Mm. They were just getting drunk all the time because it was their first time away from home, so my competitive advantage switched from – smart guy who can ace a test without even learning the math beforehand to guy who's willing to outwork everyone. Because I I wasn't smarter than anybody in college. I was just able to outwork those folks. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened in law school. But when you get to Wall Street, everyone's smart as hell and everyone's outworking. you know, they're working 20 hours a day, seven days a week. So you I lost my competitive advantage. And I ended up with uh, essentially imposter syndrome, where it was like, Oh, my God, they're going to figure out I don't belong here. I'm the dumbest guy here. I can't pay attention to anything. I'm bored, and that's going to get me a huge disadvantage, and oh, my gosh, you know, and you just go crazy, and then the guy who hired me, Dave, was never in the office, but he was one of the top paid partners, as everyone said, and I thought, wait a minute. I'm billing in six-minute increments, and you are never in the office. Do you just work from home? So I I had to find out what was going on here, because the other partners, I would come in on Saturday night to try to, like... I would try to like show some girl, you know, hey, this is my skyscraper where I work. And I remember one Saturday night showing up, and it was like two or three a.m. You know, and I'm like seven drinks deep, thinking like I'm totally gonna make out with this girl in my office because I'm 25, have a little sympathy, you know. <laughs> I'm not like that anymore. And then I show up, and everyone is there. Every single freaking partner was there. All the counsel was there. All the senior associates. And I thought, what the hell? So I got the hell out of there before they saw me and gave me work or worse. And then the next Monday. I asked one of the mid-level associates, I was like, hey, are we closing a deal? What was going on this weekend? And he goes, no, why? And I said, I don't know. Well, I'll I'll be honest. I popped up here. This is a guy I could trust. I was like, I popped up here with somebody to kind of enjoy the view. And he's like, yeah, I got you. And and I said, I saw everybody there. And he goes, dude, we're here every night. We're here every night on Saturday. What time did you come? I was like, I don't know, 2 or 3 a.m. And he goes, yeah, I mean, that's not totally unusual for us to be here at that hour. And I thought, wait a minute. I'm a summer associate. I'm going home at five, then going to see like Blue Man Group with you know my quote unquote mentor class. And they're whining and dining us to make sure we stay there. But really you're there all day, every day. So the fact that Dave wasn't even there at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, that raised a flag. And so when HR had our mentors quote unquote take us out for coffee because I'd never even seen the guy, I said, he said, ask me anything. And I, I, I'm sure he thought I was going to ask about financial derivatives. And instead I said, so everyone says you're one of the top partners, but you're never in the office. I don't understand how you bill hours. And but uh, as after he picked his job off the floor from this audacious first year associate asking him this super awkward question, he basically said, "Oh well, I don't worry about my billable hours because I bring in deals." And I thought, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "Yeah, you know, I, I." Befriend clients. I sell them on the idea of using our firm services and stuff like that. And I was like, well, how do you do that? And he goes, You just hang out, and then when you become friends, friends give each other business. And I was like, wait, just a damn second. You're hanging out all day, and as soon as those investment bankers need legal services, you basically just they just throw it to you because you're their racquetball partner. And he's like, Yeah, bro, pretty much. And so I started doing the math on this, and I realized, wait a second. If you're a law partner, you can bill out at like $1,000 an hour, $800 an hour, Mm -hmm. but this guy was more valuable outside the office than he was inside the office because it might take him 40, 50, 60 hours of hang time, but he brings in a seven-figure legal contract. And, of course, then – maybe 20 hours of hanging out later, he gets another one from that same guy. So he ends up kind of compounding his returns, whereas the billing rate for a lawyer stays pretty static if you're a partner, Mm -hmm. right? It goes with the market, it's not in your control. So I was like, holy crap, this is the quote-unquote secret third path, right? This isn't outwork everyone, this isn't somehow make yourself smarter. This is literally create relationships, and I thought, if I get good at this, I can work on this for years before any of my colleagues at this law firm even realize this is a thing we need to do. And so I have a huge time advantage on using people skills and learning people skills and learning how to network and learning all these things. I can start learning this. And by the time everybody else who's smarter than me and, and possibly harder working than me, or at least as hard working as me, by the time they even sniff, get a whiff of the fact that they're supposed to bring in clients, I'll already know what the hell I'm doing in this area. So I just went all in and doubled down on that. Instead, because I thought that was my only chance of survival in the mm-hmm. law. Firm. It wasn't some grand strategy. The strategy was don't get fired.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Um, knowing what you do about all of this, uh, why do you think that it is that we don't teach this in our schools, given that it's such a fundamental, you know, way of, of na- you know, fundamental skill for navigating the adult world? Like, I, I think it was Tucker who I heard him say it's almost ludicrous that we don't teach people how to interact with the opposite sex in our schools. Like, that just seems like <laughs> yeah. it should be part of your education.
1: Yeah, it, not only should it be part of your education, it's – well, I'm sure it's not because of liability for the opposite sex thing. But I'll <laughs> be honest. The it, They don't do it for the same reason that salespeople are are usually hired for instead of trained. So in, in any organization, they hire a bunch of salespeople, and then they put them through training. So yeah, so sales training is an interesting – Beast, because they essentially they try to train people, but they're really looking for people with a certain set of raw material. Um, And what that raw material is, is a social skill set, social intelligence and things like that. And so the reason that sales is such a high turnover job is because a lot of people, most people, in fact, can't do it well. And that's one of the reasons that these skills are not taught in school is because it's hard to teach. And if it were easy enough to teach, there, then people would train tons and tons of salespeople and we wouldn't have a – and I say crisis in air quotes because it's hardly a crisis. But mm-hmm. every organization is always looking for qualified salespeople that can really do it. And by qualified, I just mean they can sell. It doesn't matter what it says on your degree. It's it, Salespeople get paid – as much as some executives or even more in certain companies because of the rarity of that skill set and the fact that it generates revenue. So it's an extremely powerful skill set. So The idea that you can teach these skills to kids in school where classrooms have 30 kids in it is ludicrous because to socialize somebody, it just takes a lot of detailed interaction. Mm -hmm. You'd have to actually go to school for it. And don't get me wrong. It's not impossible. You would just need a really, really good coach in every single school. And you'd have to make it a core level class that people actually had to go to Mm -hmm. uh, every single year of school, all four years of high school. And it would have to be at least one period, probably two periods per day. And I think the truth is, since people don't realize that this stuff is teachable and learnable in the first place, there's very little emphasis on, hey, we should make sure that these kids learn this. They think, Ah yeah they're going to learn that in health class which also was a joke right it's like right. sex it's like a unit in a, in home economics or something like that where they're like cool yeah you're socialized now and it just doesn't work so not only is it hard to teach you'd need a ton of time and resources and you'd need a talented instructor for those for every school mm-hmm. because <laughs> you you know your old teachers not all of them are Able to socialize on their own, let alone yeah. teach other people how to do it. It's also something that, frankly, a lot of people don't think that anybody can learn or teach in the first place. That's why one of the chief arguments that's scientifically absolutely false that I hear when people hear what I do at the Art of Charm and what we do at our Art of Charm School in LA is they say things like, "Well, you know, you're born with it or you're not." And I'm like, "No, that's just a really convenient excuse for you to not work on this skill set." If 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 you'd said something like. Yeah, you know, I play basketball and I enjoy it or I go to the gym every every week for three three times a week. If I said, "Well, you're either born with it or not," you'd go, "No, that's the point of going to the gym is you're working on yourself and you're investing in the time and you're taking the time to go and you're planning it. Mm-hmm. You're not born fit or not. But we don't like to think about social skills that way because they're so abstract. Not only can we not wrap our mind around it, but the other the other sort of ghost in the room, the elephant in the room, I should say is if I'm Learning and teaching these skills to myself and I get better at life, you know, by being able to learn how to be better at work or develop better interpersonal relationships with my family or date better Um, and you don't do that. Well, what does that say about you? It's much easier for you to say, well, Jordan was born with it and I wasn't, wah, 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 than it is to go, wow, Jordan put in a lot of work and I'm not willing to do that because it's hard and I'll face rejection. So I'm going to come up with an external locus of control, an external reason why this isn't going to work for me because it absolves me of the duty to actually try. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. You know, one of the things that I've been
0: very curious about, and amazingly enough, I'm surprised it's never come up in our previous conversations. I mean, you guys managed to transcend the sort of association with pickup artists and all that nonsense and really kind of elevate yourselves out of that into, you know, a a brand and a show and, and, you know, a product that really does make the lives of people better by providing a lot of valuable content. I'm curious um, how you managed to do that.
1: Yeah. This was no easy feat and something that we're still dealing with a lot. So when we first started, we were thinking – "Our well, first going back to the whole Dave thing, right? It was he sort of pointed out the idea that I needed a network. I threw myself into that wholeheartedly, took every Dale Carnegie-style networking speech, whatever class that I could find, and then – after that, I essentially decided to go and, and learn and talk about this and teach this stuff. Then I ran into my business partner, AJ, who was really good at the opposite sex. And we were talking about this, and he kept pointing out the parallels to the whole networking thing along with the dating stuff. And I thought, wait a second. This is a lot more interesting. This just got a lot more interesting, right? Because sure, I'll need this for work in five to seven years, the networking stuff, but this sort of like meet women thing, and that applies to me right now. So we started talking about that, and then we would meet women at bars, and we were talking about body language, nonverbal communication, and dating stuff, and they would agree or disagree, and we'd have these great conversations. So we ended up being the center of attention at all these different places, and we decided, wait, let's teach this dating stuff. Well, this is 2006, so before people go, ew, pick up guys, this is 2006 the game, that book and all that stuff, that hadn't even been written yet. Or this might have even been 2005 at this point or 2004. That book hadn't been written yet. And the game written by Neil Strauss, good friend of mine, love him. um, But a lot of people who read that went, Oh, let's be weird rapey guys. And they just went (laughs) off on all these tangents and like got into some really gross stuff. And it's, it's not anything. It's not a reflection of Neil. It's a reflection on how unsocialized a lot of men were trying to turn women into a role playing game or some sort of sort of video game that they could control and and thereby get some control over their own lives. And that became problematic. And so we then had to pivot because it just got so gross uh, that we we couldn't be the good guy dating people because that just didn't work. At some point, the industry had such a bad name and the whole PUA thing had such a bad name that it was kind of like saying, I'm a drug dealer, but don't worry, I'm a good drug dealer. It's like, (laughs) you're still a drug dealer, so we're going to label you as that. And so we had to pivot. And the way that we did that was – but I didn't want to not talk about social dynamics anymore, so I had to figure out other contexts in which social dynamics and social dynamics principles were applicable, practical, and things we could still teach on The Art of Charm without being like, so when you're at a bar and you want to talk to a chick, blah, 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 this and that. And this was easier than I thought because – Frankly, I got into relationships. I'm a serial monogamist. I'm friggin' married now. So, like, I can't talk about. So, when you walk into a bar, which is, (laughs) I haven't been to a bar alone or with guys trolling for women for a decade, dude. You know, I can't do it anymore. So, I just focused on what I was interested in personally because my interest in social dynamics didn't wane. Uh It just pivoted from how do I meet girls to how do I develop meaningful relationships with the same sex and opposite sex and, and business and things like that. And I simply started talking about things I was interested in. And yes, I lost plenty of fans. This is, this was the great lesson. I lost plenty of fans who were like, why aren't you talking about picking up girls anymore? Ugh, I hate you guys now losers. Those guys went away, but a whole other contingent of people said, Oh, finally I can, namely women. I can listen to this <laughs> now. Cause it's not a bunch of bros talking about banging girls. Um, you know, another gross bro stuff. And then the other, the massive chunk of the audience, the original chunk of the audience, they simply grew with us. So since they were applying the things that they learned on the show, they also found themselves in relationships and they also found themselves growing and outgrowing the whole dating thing. So we took the majority of the audience with us. We lost a bunch of the guys that frankly, after dozens and dozens of hours, we're still having issues with this. And I I won't call them the losers, but they certainly acted like jerks online, being haters, and you could see their lack of socialization. So we dropped what I would consider the bottom 10% or 15% of the audience. The rest of the audience grew with us, and then we appealed to a whole new segment of people. And so talking about what I was interested in, as long as it had a core nexus to social dynamics works great. So I can have General McChrystal on to talk about making difficult decisions. I can have Tony Hawk on talking about managing a brand as a professional athlete in this weird niche and like becoming great at something. And I can talk to uh, a lot of these different, uh, Mike Rowe, for example, from Dirty Jobs came on the show and we talked about uh, professionals and, and trade schools, and this, you know, all kinds of funny stories from him because he's a hilarious guy. And all of this sort of made perfect sense in order to, to overlap with the Art of Charm brand. But to this day, to be frank, if I had to start it all over again, I definitely would have figured out a different brand name because there's still a healthy chunk of people that email me every week that are like, I never listened to this show for years, even though saw it in the top 10. And I even gave you a negative review without listening because I thought you guys were a bunch of jerks. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And then they're like, but I listen now and it's my favorite show and I tell everyone. And I'm just kind (laughs) of like, yeah, can you erase your one star review that says douchebag on it? Like, that's not helping. So there's still a lot of judging a book by its cover. And even now we get a lot of military and special forces clients and corporate clients coming through the Art of Charm program. And one of the biggest problems they have is they're like, hey, so I've got an invoice for this, or you've got to invoice me for this, and it's gonna be hard, what do you think I should say to my boss? And I'm like, Ugh. so we have a different corporate entity with a different name uh-huh. that we have to use for invoicing you know, the military and things like that because we simply cannot uh, send an invoice to Uncle Sam that says the art of charm because people judge books by covers. It's just a fact of life, and so in, in order to avoid having all this re- weird scrutiny, we have to we have to have a corporate name that just sounds boring, hmm. you know. So if I was able to do that again, I would have renamed the show something totally different. Uh, although you know at the time it really works well for us, so it's tough to rebrand even over a decade. It's really tough to pivot. Interesting. Um,
0: what if, what's been the impact on people's lives of really understanding, you know, social dynamics, like what kinds of outcomes have you seen in the lives of the people that have been affected by this work?
1: You mean people that come through the program and things like that? The
0: program in general. I mean, you know, in terms of learning about this aspect of their life, like what kinds of changes do they see?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is one of those sort of game changer type of concepts for me and for a lot of folks that come through because for many slash most people that come through, um and learn this and learn the stuff just from the podcast not even just from graduating from the the art of charm school in LA and stuff like that you learn so many b- things about yourself that you just never saw coming and you and you you completely learn to change the dynamic between the way that you interact with yourself and the the way that you interact with the world and I know that sounds a little bit cryptic but basically what i mean by that is a lot of people come in thinking all right, I'm a sales guy for, or, you know, a software engineer at Google, and I need to be able to transition to management roles. So I've got to figure out how to do that. Um, and then they come in and they, or, or they go, I've been d- divorced for a year and I'm having trouble getting back into the dating game because when I started dating and got married, there was no internet, which is real for a lot of people in their 40s. Mm-hmm. Or, and they come in and they think like, yeah, you know, I just need like better – ways to start conversations and follow up with people for networking or something like that. And then they come in and they find, Holy crap. It's not about what I was saying or not saying, it's about my nonverbal communication or my presence or um, you know how attentive am I to my relationships or how nurturing am I being in my relationship with my significant other or how is my leadership of my team affecting the fact that we're that sales are low I don't need persuasion tactics to persuade people to buy I need to persuade and influence and lead my team to be behind me so that we can all close deals together and you find out that the problem that people come in with or they th- uh, sorry the problem that people think they come in with, is almost never the problem that they actually have. And that's been uh, one of the major takeaways for me and for every single client that's come through the Art of Charm or everybody who's even started learning things from the Art of Charm podcast is it's never the problem that you think you have. It's very hard to Mm self-diagnose. And so a lot of people start listening to the show because they're like, I want to start a business. And they listen to some of these things and they go, "Mm, actually, I don't want to do a business at all. I just want to do my art. Or they're like, I just want to get into a relationship with somebody because then I'll feel complete. And then it's like, Oh wait, no, it's not about getting into a relationship to feel complete. It's about working on myself, deserving what I want and then filtering in the right kind of people into my life. And so that's sort of a meta takeaway that I think is extremely important because a lot of us are looking for something external that we think is going to complete us. If I get a million downloads of my podcast, I'm going to be on the cloud nine. No, you're not. You're going to be whining about how Joe Rogan gets 10 million downloads. <laughs> you know, it's it's always like that. So it has to come from internal. You have to shift the locus of control from external to internal. And I think that's one of the major, major takeaways that people get. And that's why we have fans who are listening in Syria and they're like, this has been a life-changing thing for me. And I'm like, this has been a life-changing thing for good Lord, get a flak jacket, you know, like that's what you really (laughs) need. And they're thinking like, no, this is the same thing that's gotten me through here. And you know, we'll get, emails from people who are on oil platforms or working in Antarctica or working in Africa. And of course, we're getting people who are working at law firms in Manhattan. And the takeaways are often very, very similar. That internal locus of control, the fact that you can, you can learn about certain skill sets that you thought were previously unteachable, unlearnable, and you can apply these things in your life, and you're not just a big version of the cutout, cardboard cutout that you were when you were 10 years old. You know, the the idea that we can change every aspect almost of our personality despite nature and nurture, we can nurture ourselves to be the person we want to be is massively empowering. And it's something that's on a lot of Instagram memes, but none of us really truly believe it until we see it. And in order to see it, we got to put in the work. And in order to put in the work, we got to have somebody showing us what to do. And that's what we're trying to do at the Art of Charm because social intelligence is really humanity's only superpower. You know, there are apes that are stronger than us. Um, there's a lot of animals that, are, that were uh, humanoid species, I should say, back in the day that had bigger brains than us that were theoretically smarter than us, but they did not have social organization. And so for a lot of us, our greatest superpower is something that we completely ignore, which to me just makes no sense and is the problem that the Art of Charm podcast is trying to remedy.
0: Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really fascinating. And uh, you filled it with a lot of nuggets. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish every interview at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. And it's one of those like just vague enough to encompass any answer. <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure this has been said a bajillion times, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's the truth. I think being able to be authentic and unapologetically yourself is extremely powerful and unmistakable. But what I don't mean is don't apologize. And and I don't want this to come across as like the another sort of bromide. Um, and I put an emphasis on bro. The one uh, emphasis on the bromide here is a lot of people are like, never apologize, unapologetically yourself. That's not what I mean. Um, the guys who and, and women who are walking through life thinking, I don't give a crap, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. It's like, no, you give so many craps, you wanna give the illusion that you don't care. there's so much strength in actual vulnerability that there's no point in faking vulnerability because it just puts a mask on yourself. And that mask drives a wedge between you and everyone that you interact with. So that vulnerability of just speaking what's on your mind in a way that's not designed to elicit a reaction is, uh, well, frankly, a skill that's so far taken me a lifetime to master. But when people do it right, it's so freaking refreshing, relaxing, and endearing that I think that would make anybody unmistakable. Awesome. Well,
0: I think that makes a fitting end to our conversation. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment, If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
2: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch,